In his book entitled, Improving Your Serve, it is Chuck Swindoll who writes, Let's pretend that I am the owner of a rapidly growing business, and you are one of my employees. I have an interest in expanding the enterprise overseas, but I need you to stay stateside and run the operation. I promise you that while I'm gone, I will give you letters and correspondence detailing accurately all of the expectations. I make the presentation, you accept the offer, I leave for Europe, and after a while, the letters start flying in. I'm gone for about a year. And after that year, I come back. I drive back to the office, and I am stunned. When I drive up to the office building, I see that no one is taking care of the landscape. The grass is about three feet tall. The windows facing the street are all broken out. No one is at the reception desk. The carpets have not been vacuumed. The trash is overflowing. When I bump into you, you're playing Candy Crush on your iPhone. I call you into my office, which you've turned into just another break room. It is lined with flat screen televisions where the other employees can watch daytime talk shows and soap operas. I look at you in disgust and I say, what is going on? And you respond, what's the problem? And I say to you, there is nothing about this that's acceptable. Did you get my letters? Oh, the letters? Yeah, we got every one of those. In fact, you would be proud to know that we have a Thursday night letter study each and every week. We divided all of the employees into small groups, and we get together and we uh, study the letters that you sent to us. In fact, some of us have memorized some of your sentences. Some of us have even memorized entire paragraphs, and some of your letters are memorized by a few individuals in their totality. i got to be honest with you. There's some great things in those letters. And I say to you, well, that's great. So you got the letter, you've read the letter, you've studied the letter, you've meditated, and you've even memorized the letter, but what did you do with what you were taught? Do, you reply. We didn't do anything. This morning, my friends, what do you do with what you've been taught? With that in mind, I invite you to take your Bible, turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Today we continue our sermon series, Blessed Assurance, a study in the Gospel of Luke. And once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Luke chapter 5, we'll begin at verse 1. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I'll let down the nets. 
When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. So were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Our story begins on the shoreline of the Lake of Gennesaret. Other gospel writers in other places call this very same place the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee was a popular fishing hole in the first century. There were many individuals who made their livelihood by catching fish from that body of water. That was a particular body of water that was only about 8 miles wide and 14 miles long. It seems that Luke is most intrigued with this story. This story is referenced in Matthew as well as in Mark, but both Matthew and Mark give us a Reader's Digest version of the story. Luke's version gives us much more clarity and texture. He tells us that on a given day, Jesus was surrounded by a crowd. The crowd was so large and they so much wanted to hear what Jesus had to say that they pressed up against him, backing him down the seashore of the lake of Gennesaret. Eventually, he got to the shoreline and he decided to use one of the boats as an aquatic pulpit. He got into the boat that was belonging to Simon. He asked him to push off a little from shore. And from that vantage point, he preached the gospel. I must be honest with you that I'm always impressed with the tenacity of Jesus in telling the story. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is a man on a mission. It seems that he goes here, there, and everywhere, taking the good news of the gospel wherever he goes. And he wants to tell as many people as possible, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. I'm sure that when he sat down in that boat and turned around and talked to the crowd, he told them how to go from death unto life, that he came to give them eternal life, and that eternal life would begin at the moment of faith when they proclaim their faith in Christ for forgiveness of sin. And Jesus was always tenacious about telling the story. He, he was obsessed about obedience. And all throughout Luke's gospel, we find Jesus going from village to village. In fact, it's Luke who tells us in chapter 4 that the ministry of Jesus began in his hometown synagogue of Nazareth. We're also told that in a place like uh, Luke chapter 7, it is Jesus who goes to the village of Nain. He bumps into a funeral procession. He speaks to a dead corpse, and the little boy rises up, and Jesus scoops him out of the coffin and returns him to his grieving mother. You go to a place like Luke chapter 8, and Jesus goes to the region of the Gerasenes, and there he bumps into a demon-possessed man. He's so possessed by demons that the demons have renamed him Legion. And Jesus gives him sanity again 
gives him a new lease on life. You go to a place like Luke chapter 10, and Jesus in the village of Bethany. And he's there, and he's teaching the crowds, but he also stays in the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. You go to a place like Luke chapter 19. You find Jesus on the streets of Jericho. He went there to find a wee little man named Zacchaeus. He stares up into a sycamore fig tree. He calls him by name. Zacchaeus scurries down. And after the conversation and exchange between Jesus and Zacchaeus, Jesus stands up and says today, salvation has come to this house. For this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Make no mistake about it, Jesus is a man on a mission. Jesus has an agenda from God. Jesus is tenacious about telling the story. In the preceding verses of our passage, we are told that Jesus had a, a wonderful, fruitful day of ministry in a place called Capernaum. That's a village, a town in Galilee. The next morning, the crowd looks for him because they plead with him to stay and develop a mega church ministry. And Jesus says to them, I must go to other towns and villages and preach the gospel there, for that is why I was sent. It seems that Jesus is, is, is eager to go where the Father wants him to go, to tell the gospel to as many people as possible. It seems that Jesus was very intentional. A couple of weeks ago, you and I talked about being intentional about the gospel. We ask ourselves a couple of questions, questions that will repeat itself all throughout this year, questions of what, where, and who. Because we are lifelong believing learners of Christ, what are we learning? Because we are disciples of our Lord, where are we taking the gospel in 2016? And who are you trying to reach? And if a specific person doesn't come to mind in less than three seconds, then you and I are not being intentional enough. I think it is this level of intentionality that Jesus used. He was a man on a mission. He was tenacious about telling the story. He wanted to hear a divine agenda from God the Father. And wherever God told him to go, that's where he went and took the gospel. On this day, Jesus goes to the Sea of Galilee. He teaches the crowd. I'm quite sure that at the end, he offered the invitation. The people responded and the crowd dispersed. And then Jesus turned to the fishermen. And he said to Peter, let's go out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. This must have been a silly, ludicrous statement for Jesus to make to Peter. Or at least that's what Peter initially thinks. He must think to himself, who do you think you are? You are a carpenter turned preacher. What do you know about fishing? Peter would have said to himself, I am the expert here. I mean, this is how I make my living. I know how to fish. It would be like me trying to tell a dentist how to do a root canal. Or be like me trying to tell a pilot how to fly a Boeing 747. I don't have the foggiest clue how to do a, a root canal. I don't even know how to start a plane, let alone fly a plane. I mean, what good would I do to tell anybody like that how to do their job? This is exactly how Peter thinks. Who do you think you are to tell me what to do and how to do it? Furthermore, to add insult to injury, what Jesus says to a seasoned fisherman 
Sounds crazy. Every fisherman worth his bait in the first century. He knew that it was far more lucrative to fish at night versus during the day. And if you're going to fish at night, then you would go out into deep water. You'd use a heavy net to let it down. But, but during the day, you would fish in shallow water. You'd use a totally different net. In fact, Peter is cleaning the net from the deep sea fishing excursion that went on all night the previous evening, and it netted nothing because they had caught no fish, and yet he was still there having to clean it and remove the debris and repair the tattered, torn nets. And it's almost as if Jesus says, I'll take anything. Take, take that net you got in your hand, and let's go out and fish some more. And Peter says, this makes no sense to me. This, this doesn't make any sense at all. You don't know what you're talking about, do you, Jesus? You don't have the slightest idea what it is to fish. Why are you doing this? And then he says, Master, we, we fished all night long. We haven't caught anything. I mean, if there were fish to catch in the Sea of Galilee, Peter says, I, I would have caught them last night. They're not there. I mean, we know where to go. We know what to do. We know how to do it. Jesus, we have fished all night long. And we haven't caught anything. But because you say so, we will we'll do what you request. In so many words, what Peter is saying to Jesus is that infamous eight-word statement that's been repeated in the church for all the generations. The eight-word statement is this. We ain't never done it that way before. <laughs> Master, we fished all night long. We know how to do it. We know what net to use. We know where to go in the Sea of Galilee. We know what time of day and night it is. At night, you take the heavy net into deep water. Now it's daytime. We need to use the shallow nets in shallow water in order to catch fish. We ain't never done it your way before. But because you say so, we'll do it. There was a relationship that already existed between Peter and Jesus. Don't think for a second that this is the first time that Peter had ever met Jesus. The case could be made that they knew each other for months. In fact, in the previous chapter of Luke chapter 4, it is Jesus who goes into the home of Simon Peter. We know that Simon was married because his mother-in-law was sick. She had a fever. And Jesus heals her. And then, from that vantage point of the home of Simon Peter, he sets up shop, and many people from that town come, and they bring the deaf and the blind and the lame, and Jesus ministers to them, and he gives them the word of God. So Peter and Jesus know each other. This is not the first encounter that they've ever had. So Peter says, in a very polite way, yet a very direct way, we ain't ever done it that way before, but because of my respect for you, because of, of who you are, we'll let down the nets. Nobody was ready for what happened next. The water was splashing, the fish were flopping, and the nets were breaking. Nobody was ready for this. This astonished Peter and his brother Andrew. In fact, when they saw all the fish that were just like jumping into the nets, jumping into the boats, they called their 
business partners, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, they said, quick, come over, bring your boat. And so both boats were there and the nets were cast, nets were breaking, both boats were full. And when all the commotion had calmed down, the apostle Peter looked around and he said, I've never seen a catch like this before. The nets were full, the boats were swamped. And everybody was almost beginning to sink under the heavy load of the fish. Peter, the seasoned sailor, Peter, the professional fisherman, had never seen a catch like this. In all of his years of fishing, never anything that comes close to what happens on this day. And for the first time, Luke introduces him with his full proper name, Simon Peter. It's in verse 8. And Simon Peter falls at the knees of Jesus. And he says, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. This whole experience would have been very humbling for Peter, if not humiliating. After all, he's a professional. He knows how to fish. And here comes this this rabbi, this preacher. What does a preacher know about fishing? Here comes this preacher. And the preacher comes along, and because of his instructions, there's the greatest catch ever imaginable. This is humiliating for Peter. At some point, Peter must have concluded, you know, Jesus is better at Peter's profession than Peter is at Peter's profession. Have you ever gotten to that conclusion yourself? That Peter is, uh, that Jesus is better at what you do than you are at what you do? Jesus is a better school teacher than you are as a school teacher. Jesus is a better bus driver than you are as a bus driver. Jesus is a better attorney than you are as an attorney. Jesus is a better business owner than you are as a business owner. Jesus knows how to run your household better than you know how to run your household. Have you gotten to the place where you believe and are convinced that Jesus is better at what you do than you are at what you do? This is a very humbling position to be in where you declare unto Jesus, Jesus, you are better at what I do than I am at what I do. And Peter had to come to this conclusion. I want you to notice the different perspective that Peter had. In verse 5, he calls him master. In verse 8, Peter calls Jesus Lord. There's a transition. There's, there's a, an exchange that has taken place. Now, no longer is it just a polite term of endearment, master or sir. Now it's Lord. This word Lord means so much more than just a polite way to say sir. It's a word that means you have all power, you have all authority, because Jesus just demonstrated that he knows how to fish. He knows where the fish are. He can command the fish to get into the nets. And to a fisherman, this is a demonstration of power and authority. Lord go away from me. I am a sinful man. I'm amazed that because of this catch, Peter was made aware of his sinfulness. I don't think that Jesus pointed out Peter's wickedness. I don't think he stood up like, 
an evangelist and, and pointed out and itemized all the sins of Peter. Peter, you did this and you did that and you've done this and you've done that and you are a woeful, sinful individual. I don't think that Jesus does any of that. What Jesus does do is he blesses Peter big time. He, he shows Peter the goodness of God. And in the realization of the splendor of God, this one human is made aware of his own sinfulness. You know, there are a couple of ways to help people acknowledge their sinfulness. One is that you can call them out as a sinner. I mean, that, that kind of works sometimes when you say, hey, you're a sinner because you've done X, Y, and Z. But you know, there's another way to make people aware of their sin is to simply show them the goodness of God. You show them how spectacular God is. You show them the splendor of God. And when they see themselves up against the holiness of God, they will come to the same conclusion that Peter came to. I am a wretched man. Away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. As I think about this exchange, I'm reminded of those infamous words of the hymn that I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And I wonder, how can he love me, a sinner, condemned, unclean? But oh, how marvelous, and oh, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. Oh, how marvelous, and oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. I don't know about you, but Jesus has blessed my socks off. I don't know about you, but Jesus has shown me his goodness. I don't know about you, but Jesus has revealed his splendor. And when I see that, I stand amazed in the presence. This is what Peter experiences in the very presence of Jesus. And Jesus says to him, don't be afraid. From now on, you're going to catch men. Don't be afraid. From now on, you will be a fisher of men. They all pull their boats ashore. They're all moved by this entire experience. And we are told they left everything and they followed Christ. How does a person get to that point? How does a person get there where they leave everything behind and follow Christ? How does a person get to that point where they're willing to leave everything in the rearview mirror and follow hard after God? The only conclusion I can come to is this. But the only way a person will do that is when that person realizes that Jesus is greater than the greatest thing in their life. It's only when a person understands that Jesus is greater than the greatest thing in their life that they'll then be willing to drop it, leave it, and follow hard after God. So this morning, let me ask you, what's the greatest thing in your life? And please don't give me the Sunday school answer. What's the greatest thing in your life? What is that thing that you think about the most? What is that thing that you rearrange your schedule for? Who is that person that you make it your aim to please? What is the greatest thing in your life? Is it your spouse? Your children? Your grandchildren? Is it your health? Is it your career? Is it your retirement plan? Is it your personal comfort? Is it you? 
Can we just be dead level honest today? That for a lot of people, the greatest thing in their life is them? I mean, they would say, I'm the greatest thing in my life because I, I rearranged my schedule for me. And I, I'm making my aim to please me. What is the greatest thing in your life? Up until this point, the greatest thing in the life of Peter was his profession to fish. That was how he was known. That was his reputation. That was his identity. He was known as a fisherman. I can assume he was known as a pretty good fisherman. This is how other people knew him in the community. This is how other people uh, regarded him. This is Peter. He's the fisherman. He owns his own business for crying out loud. And up until this day, fishing was the greatest thing in his life. Until the catch. Until that moment when Jesus demonstrated the fullness of his greatness and it revealed Peter's sinfulness. And he said, I'm going to leave it all and I'm going to follow hard after Christ. You know, I guess this is an easy lesson to grasp. But it's pretty hard to live. For the better part of three years, Peter did follow hard after Christ. But then Jesus was handed over to the religious rulers. They gave him to the Roman authorities. They beat him, they stripped him, they nailed him to a cross of wood, and Jesus died. They took his dead, lifeless corpse, and they placed it into a grave. They rolled a stone in front of it, and Peter did not know what to do next. In fact, in John chapter 21, Peter says to six of his friends, I'm going fishing. And they said, it's a great idea, we'll go with you. In John chapter 21, when Jesus, or when Peter says, I'm going fishing, he's not saying, I'm going to go get the rod and reel. We're going to spend a couple of hours at the pond, and we're going to waste a good, sunny, Palestinian afternoon. Now, when he says, I'm going fishing, he's saying, I'm going back to what was once the greatest thing in my life. I'm going back to the way life was. I've got to retreat. I've got to make a profession. I've got to make a livelihood now. I've got to, I've got to do something uh, to put bread on my table. Because after all, I had all my eggs in the Jesus basket. And now Jesus is dead and gone. I'm going fishing. I'm going back to the Sea of Galilee. I'm opening up shop once again. And we're back into business, boys. And they said, we'll go with you. They fished all night long. <laughs> they caught nothing. I've got to be honest. If, if Peter is a good fisherman, he never catches a thing. Have you noticed that? Every time he fishes, he doesn't catch a thing. So on this night, in John chapter 21, they fish all night. They don't catch anything. As they're making their way early in the morning back to shore, Peter is dejected, he is frustrated. Um, now he's his first day back on the job and he's a dismal failure. And then he looks onto the seashore and there's a silhouette of a man. Nobody in the boat knows who that man is. And all of a sudden that man says, did you catch any fish? And Peter can be salty from time to time. And I'm quite sure that Peter glared at him and said, no, we didn't catch any fish. Who is that jerk? Who do you think you are? And then the silhouette of the man 
says, put your nets on the right side of the boat. Oh, now Peter's about to blow it, right? I mean, he's about to go sky. What do you mean the right side? You know, as opposed to the left side or the back side or the wrong side? Who do you, you just wait till I get to shore. And his buddies say, Peter, just drop the net. So he takes the net and he drops it on the right side of the boat. And all of a sudden, water started splashing. And fish started flopping. And Peter's memory went back to Luke chapter 5. He glanced back at the shoreline. The beloved disciple named John reached down and said, It's the Lord. He used the same terminology that Peter used of Jesus in Luke chapter 5, verse 8. It is the Lord. And Peter says, yeah, yeah, I know. John says, this is the third appearance of the resurrected Christ to his disciples. And John, in, I mean, Peter, in very Peter fashion, he jumps out of the boat and he swims ashore, leaving all of his buddies to do all the work of rowing the boat ashore. And Peter goes up and he stands there and he just stares at Jesus. Jesus says, how many fish you got? And Peter pulls up the nets and he begins to count the fish. I know the Roman Catholic Church claims Peter's belonging to them, but I got to tell you, I think that Peter's a good Baptist. <laughs> he counts the stinking fish. John says there's 153 large fish. They threw out the small ones, just the large ones, 153. They make breakfast. Jesus comes up to Peter. He says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Peter, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Peter, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. My question is, what are the these that Jesus is referring to? Some have said the these represent the other disciples. He's saying, Peter, do you love me more than these disciples love me? And I don't think that's what Jesus means at all. Jesus never was into the banter of who loves Jesus more. I think when he says, do you love me more than these? He's saying, do you love me more than these stinky fish? Do you love me more than you love your old way of life? Do you love me more than you love your profession? Do you love me more than your greatest thing in your life? Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, once again, you know that I love you. I pledged my love to you three years ago. Jesus says, then, feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. Ultimately, you know what Jesus says to Peter in John 21? Follow me. The same thing that he said three years earlier. Follow me. You've got to lay down the greatest thing in your life when you understand that Jesus is greater than the greatest thing in your life. And Jesus says, you've got to do something. What must we do with what we've learned? What must we do with what we've been taught? We must follow Christ. Follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Fast forward. About 50 days later. And Peter is standing on the day of Pentecost, and he preaches the gospel. He talks about this resurrected Christ. He speaks of how 
people ought to repent and believe and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. And on that day, there was a great catch. Some 3,000 men were saved. Peter cast the net. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, 3,000 people were saved. And Peter was a fisher of men. What do you do with what you've learned? What do you do with what you've been taught? You've got to lay and leave your stinky fish. You've got to go follow hard after God. This morning I wonder, what is the greatest thing in your life that you need to leave behind? Who is the greatest thing in your life that you need to leave behind? The message of this passage seems to be pretty clear and easy to grasp. That Jesus is greater than the greatest thing in your life. And when you come to that conclusion, you will be willing to leave it all behind and follow Christ. So all to Jesus, I surrender. And all to him, I freely give. I will ever love and trust him. And in his presence, I'll daily live. So I surrender it all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all stinky fish to thee. This morning I wonder, what do you need to surrender unto Christ? The message of the passage is that Jesus is greater than the greatest thing in your life. And when you come to that conclusion... There won't be anybody or anything that can stop God's mission in you. Because you, my friend, you've been created to be fishers of men and women, boys and girls. Because Jesus is greater than the greatest thing in your life. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. On this day, we ask you to identify in our hearts and in our minds those stinky fish, those great things. Maybe it is our profession. Maybe it is our identity. Maybe it is our reputation. Maybe it is our family. Maybe it is our future, our retirement, our money, our career, whatever it may be. And Lord, may we not put you on par with anything in this world because you are greater than the greatest thing in our life. So on this day, we surrender everything unto you. Lord, may this altar be full of stinky fish that we lay down at your feet, leave behind and follow hard after you. Oh Lord, help us to be tenacious about telling the gospel story. In Jesus' name we pray.